rejected Jesus at his first coming, that God has forever rejected the nation of Israel as his people. He has no present or future plan for the nation of Israel whatsoever. And uh, we indicated how that had a devastating effect upon Jewish people up through the Middle Ages, and how many of them, hundreds of thousands of them, were massacred in the name of Christ, and they were called Christ killers. And even after the Reformation, there was some persecution, even the part of Protestants against Jewish people. And I want to just give you uh, just a few examples of anti-Semitism by so-called Christian groups and everything just within, uh, since the year 2000 uh, here in America and even overseas. For example, in the year 2003, delegates to the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly adopted a resolution requesting that the denomination withdraw its shareholding investments from companies that have business with Israel. In other words, stop investing in these businesses that uh, will carry on trade and everything with the nation of Israel. The goal is to destroy Israel's economy so that Israel can no longer exist there in the Middle East as a nation. In October of 2004, 24 representatives of the Presbyterian Church USA met with leaders of the Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon and criticized the nation of Israel while they were there with those Hezbollah terrorists. Then in 2006, the New York Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church also adopted a resolution urging withdrawal of its shareholding investments from companies doing business with Israel, and they accused Israel of many illegal and violent activities. End of quotation. In July 2002, a group of 60 evangelical Christians sent a letter to President Bush asking his administration to alter Middle East policies that tilted in favor of Israel. And the letter expressed the belief that Israel's settlement movement was unlawful and degrading. And there's some key Christian leaders, and I want to make it very clear, although I'm going to name names here, I don't like to do this, but I think you must be aware of it. And uh, in no way am I implying they're not believers in Jesus. The ones I'm going to name, I'm convinced, are born-again believers in Jesus. But because of their covenant theology, which prompts them to develop this replacement theology, uh, they say that God's done with Israel. Among those were James Kennedy, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Mank, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man uh, on uh, the radio, on Christian radio. All these men have held to the whole idea that God's done with Israel forever, and he's replaced it with the church. And so the church is now God's Israel, and the church receives the blessings that God promised to the nation of Israel. Then, uh, a number of so-called evangelicals uh, have spoken out against what they call Christian Zionism. And Christian Zionism is a term applied to believers such as you and I are, who believe that uh, God is not done with the nation of Israel, and that the nation of Israel has the right to exist in their homeland and to defend themselves against their attackers. And a whole group of these so-called evangelicals back in 2004 met in Jerusalem uh, for a kind of a conference that was entitled Challenging Christian Zionism. And some of them said Christian Zionists, those who believe that Israel has the right to exist there, are the most dangerous group in America here today. And then, uh, one of the interesting things to highlight of that conference was these evangelicals met with PLO leader Yasser Arafat to uh, express their concern for him and the, and the Palestinian people. I don't know if you realize or not, but many Mennonites are strongly, strongly anti-Israel, very strongly pro-Palestinian. And uh, not just a few weeks ago when Ahmadinejad was here, but the previous time he was here in America, Mennonites put on a special dinner to meet with Ahmadinejad there in New York City. And uh, my wife and I live in Leicester County, Pennsylvania, where there are a lot of Mennonite people. And many of them are very uh, strongly opposed to the nation of Israel in the Middle East. Uh, one of the ladies in our Bible-believing church used to work uh, as uh, 
an agent, you know, for planning people and trips and everything, which was a Mennonite organization there. And she said, if he even brought up the word Israel, the tension with the other, with the Mennonite staff there got so thick you could almost cut it with a knife because they were just so belligerently opposed to the nation of Israel there in the Middle East. So these are just several examples of some of the line of thinking and everything among so-called evangelicals, but also your more liberal uh, church Protestant denominations here in America today. I mentioned to you last evening uh, a special significant thing to me personally uh, with regard to this. And uh, I have to give you some background uh, about this. I grew up in a town of population of about 9,000 to 10,000 people in western Pennsylvania. And there was a very small number of Jewish people that lived in that town. But one of the Jewish men who was in the U.S. Army and uh, fought on behalf of America during World War II in Europe had a men's clothing store there in my hometown. And when I was in ninth grade, he asked if I would come and work for him. And so I worked for him on a part-time basis all the way through high school, from ninth grade until I graduated from high school in 1953. That man was one of the kindest, most gracious persons I've ever worked for in all my life. And he would put a lot of trust in me. Allow sometimes, if he had to be away, couldn't close the store, he would let up to me to close down the store and make sure the cash was taken care of and get mail that had to go out and everything on his behalf. And he had a son. The only child that he and his wife had was a son by the name of Richard. And when I graduated from high school in uh, 1953, Richard was about five years of age. And uh, I I quit then working for his father because I had to get a full-time job during the summer for money to prepare me for going off to college in the fall. And so the last I saw Richard was in 1953 when he was five years of age. Now, in the intervening years from sin, uh, since then up to now, I would write to his father. And I sent him a copy of my book, What on Earth is God Doing, for him to read. And uh, even got him copies of our magazine, Israel My Glory. Lo and behold, after 57, no, about uh, 59 years or so, of not hearing or seeing Richard, I get a phone call out of Richard. And uh, he is now about 63 years of age. He's a, a lawyer in the city of Pittsburgh. And he called me and said, I want you to know that my father died about two months ago. About two months ago. But he said, I've been going through the things that he kept here over the years. And I found your letters that he wrote to him. I found your book that you sent to him. And he said, you know, over the years, he would talk to me about you from time to time. But then he said to me, I also want you to know I am driven, absolutely driven to find out what is all this talk about Jesus being the Messiah. I want to find out what's that about. And so I began uh, calling him or corresponding with him. We've been sending emails back and forth. Uh, since that time, and uh, he uh, would respond, and he uh, would say to me, I thank you for being my friend, I, I appreciate that, and I, he told me, I am so driven to find out what this is all about, the idea that Jesus was Messiah, he said, I've been meeting with some of the deacons of your church, my church there in, in Du Bois, Pennsylvania, been uh, was started back in the 1880s and has been a very sound Bible-believing church. It's dispensational, premillennial, preacher of rapture. Many of the young people from that church have gone out in a full-time ministry. He said, I, I've been meeting with the deacons and asking questions. And he said, any time when I'm up there in Dubois from Pittsburgh and I hear that there's a ministerial uh, association meeting of pastors, I just go and I just sit in and listen to see what they have to say. But many of these pastors were liberal uh, you know, on their own. Well, lo and behold, I would say probably about two months ago, he shared something with me that really clicked with me why he feels driven 
to find out what's all this talk about Jesus being the Messiah. He told me that when he was five years of age, which would have been right around the time the last I saw him back in 1953, some of his playmates in their neighborhood, there in Du Bois, came to the door and asked him to come out and play with them. And he did. When he came out, they tied him to a tree. They put flammable things around his feet and they ignited him. They were going to burn him at the stake. And thankfully, there was a woman came there just in the nick of time and saw what was going on. She stamped out the flames and she uh, really rebuked the children for doing this and they untied him and set him free. And when he went and asked his playmates, why did you do that to me? Their answer was, because you are a Christ killer. You are a Christ killer. And that whole concept, again, I mean, here on a five-year-old boy, and children about his age have that concept, because you're a Jew, you're a Christ killer. And uh, I literally wept when I got that. Excuse me, I get emotional about this. How tragic. How tragic. And in light of that, I started sending other materials to him. I'd already sent him articles I'd written in a magazine about God's relationship to Israel, what his plan and purpose is for the nation of Israel, and all the rest. And I wrote to him an email, and I said to him, I want you to understand not all Christians are the same in their thinking. And People who believe what I believe would be totally opposed to what those playmates did to you and what people down through the Middle Ages did to the Jewish people. And uh, I sent him uh, this time uh, a paper that I'd written 30-some pages years ago where I went systematically through all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and then went to the New Testament and showed how it the scriptures indicate that Jesus fulfilled those messianic prophecies. I also sent to him uh, an article that I just came across from the secular media within this last year, that there was a, a Israelite scholar, his whole field of research throughout most of his adult life has been uh, observing ancient Hebrew script, how in ancient times, like back in Old Testament times, they would form their letters. This man, last year I believe it was, was visiting in Switzerland. He went into a shop and he spotted there a large slab of stone and ancient Hebrew script was painted on that stone. And because that was his area of research, he went over and began looking at it and he was astounded by what he saw. And he said to the, the man who owned that the business, he explained to him what his own background was and why he was so intrigued by this. He said, would you be, give me permission to take this to the nation of Israel for other scholars to look at it? Because this is a very important thing, article that you have here. And that's what happened. He took it to Israel and other Jewish scholars who are, again, they're experts on ancient Jewish script. They looked at it, and they said, this is not a fake. This is genuine. And they could tell by the way the letters were formed, this was written anywhere from 200 to 100 years before Jesus was born there in the land of Israel. But what really struck them was this. They were astounded what this script said, that in the future there'd be a key leader that would come to the nation of Israel, but he would be killed and then raised from the dead three days later. They were shocked by this. And they said, wait a minute, this sounds like Christianity. But this was written 200 to 100 years before Jesus was even born. And so this is not Christian. This is Judaism. This is a Judaism piece of, of literature. We've got to start rethinking what we've been thinking all along in light of this. And so I, I sent my friend a copy of this article for him to, to see as well. And uh, I sent to him the, re, the revision on my book, What on Earth is God Doing? But I also sent him our book, 
on replacement theology that we talked about last night. And, uh, and I said to him, when you read that particular book, that's going to help you see that not all Christians are the same. This shows why Jewish people were persecuted severely during the Middle Ages. And this will help also help you understand why some of your playmates wanted to burn you at the stake and call you a Christ killer. And I said, I, I want you to know that people, Christians who believe what I believe are totally opposed to that. That was completely contrary to what Jesus would have taught and stood for. And that these are, are Christians who uh, perverted what God intended the church to be. And that's why Jews have been persecuted down through the centuries of time. Well, he responded to me, uh, even before he received the last materials, he just said to me, thank you for being my friend. And I, I, I tried to get together with him. I said, we've got to get together for two or three days and just sit down and let you ask all the questions I want to ask. But because of his law practice, uh, and I'm so busy out ministering different places, we couldn't get a time together. So what I'm intending to do now is uh, when I figure he wouldn't be uh, working, like maybe on the weekend or something like that, call him on the phone. But I said to him, after I sent the material, the last materials to him, I said, I want you to read this, and I want you to be, feel perfectly free to answer, ask all the questions you want about this, because I want you to know what the truth is. You said you're driven to find out what is all this thinking about Jesus being the Messiah. And I want to help you to understand why the scriptures indicate he is the Messiah and why Christians like myself believe he is the Messiah that God has sent to the world in his first coming and why he died on the cross of Calvary. And so this is just an example. I mean, here's a little boy here in America in the 1950s, and some of his neighbors, the children have been taught, he's a Jew, he's a Christ killer. And that's why they tried to burn him at the stake. This is serious, serious things, this whole concept of replacement theology. That uh, early church leaders within 100 years after the apostles were off the world scene began to, to uh, come up with this idea. And we saw last night how that radically changed. Uh, the nature of the church and, and played a key role in the development of the whole Roman Catholic system and then the persecution of Jews through the Middle Ages and even after the Reformation there in Europe. Now, the bottom line issue on this whole concept of replacement theology is this. Is God faithful to his word? This is the bottom line issue. Is God faithful to his word? If he gives promises to a people and says this is in effect forever, does God break that? Is God faithful to his word? If I can't trust God to be faithful to the promised commitments he made to the nation of Israel, then how can I as a Christian trust God to be faithful to me in the promises he's made to me and fellow believers in Jesus Christ? And in light of that, I want to deal with just one aspect of this from the Old Testament scriptures and deal with the subject of Israel and the Abrahamic Covenant. Israel and the Abrahamic Covenant. And the first major thing we have to see about this is as follows. The parties of the Abrahamic Covenant. The parties of the Abrahamic Covenant. A covenant is a binding commitment that always involves at least two parties. You can't have a one-party covenant. A covenant demands two parties. Even if one party is making all the commitment, you have to have a second party to whom he's making that commitment and who will accept the commitment that the first party has made. And so the question here is, who are the parties of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, we're going to see that the first party is God. Because we're going to see God's the one who made the promises in, in this covenant. And uh, we're going to see that God established this covenant with Abraham and his biological descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel. Turn, if you would, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 18. Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 18. If we were to read the whole chapter, we'd find that God and Abraham were carrying on an audible conversation with each other. 
And look at the wood, please, in verse 18 of Genesis 15. In that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Here is God establishing the covenant originally. And so the other party with which he's originally establishing it is with Abraham. But he's saying here, I'm giving to your seed, your biological descendants, this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So God's the first party here. Now we see here the second party is Abraham. But then, if you would please, uh, go over to Genesis chapter 17. And we have to get a little bit of background here again. You probably know, if, if you've studied the book of Genesis much, that Abraham and Sarah did not have any children until they were late in years, very late in years. And God had promised that they would have at least a son. And years went by and nothing was happening along those lines. And apparently, uh, Abraham and Sarah had a lapse of faith. And Sarah said to Abraham, take my Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, and father a child through her. Apparently, they thought we have to help God out, fulfill his promise about our, our having a child. And so Abraham did that. And Hagar gave birth to a son. And they called him Ishmael. Ishmael. When we come to Genesis chapter 17. Most Bible scholars feel that Ishmael, by this time, this recorded for us in Genesis 17, that Ishmael was probably about 13 or 14 years of age. And notice uh, what Abraham, in verse 18 of Genesis 17, says to God. He and God are carrying on a conversation again. Genesis 17, verse 18. Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, in this context, I'm convinced that was Abraham's way of saying, God, please bless my son Ishmael by establishing with him the same covenant you've established with me. Notice how God responded, verse 19. And God said, Sarah, your, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. So here's now the third party in the covenant. Party one is God. Second one is Abraham. Now God's saying, this other son of yours, Abraham, that your wife Sarah will give birth to a year from now, you're going to call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him, after his biological descendants. And then he, he goes on, verse 20, he says, And as for Ishmael, I've heard you, behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly, twelve princes, shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But, that word but's very critical here, in light of what's going on today. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto you at the set time in the next year. Notice God's drawing a distinction here between these two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. And he's saying the covenant I've already established with you, Abraham, I'm going to establish it with, with your other son, Isaac, that your wife, sir, will give birth to a year from now. And I've heard your plea about Ishmael. I am blessing Ishmael, and I'm going to bless him and his descendants. But I'm not going to establish with him the covenant I've established with you, and I will establish with your son Isaac about a year from now. That's a very important distinction to see. Here's why. Most uh, historians of ancient history claim that Ishmael was the father of the Arab people of the world. He was the first Arab. And they indicate that when Ishmael grew up to be like a young adult, he left the land of Canaan where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac were living and migrated over into what today is Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, and became, in essence, the first Arab. And therefore, the Ishmaelites, his descendants, were Arab people. Now, notice, God didn't say, I'm opposed to Ishmael and his descendants, or he didn't say, I hate Ishmael and his descendants. So God's not saying here, I'm going to hate the Arab people of the world. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless Ishmael and his descendants. So that I'm not, I'm not against them. Has God blessed the Arab people? Has he ever? Every nation all across North Africa is owned by Arab people today. 
And all the nations in the Middle East, over, clear over into what today is Iraq, are Arab except the little state of Israel. The Arab people today own over 99 and 9 tenths percent of all that massive land area of all of North Africa and the Middle East. Israel owns less than one-tenth of one percent of all the land area of that part of the world. In addition, the Arab people, as you know, have been sitting on some of the greatest oil reserves upon planet Earth. And they're getting extremely wealthy by exporting that oil to the Western nations and other parts of the world. God has blessed the Arab people. So he's not against them. But he's saying they're not getting the covenant that goes with land promise that I've already made with you and we're going to make with your son Isaac and his biological descendants, the people of Israel, in the future. So then the next party of the covenant is Isaac's son Jacob, which would be Abraham's grandson. And uh, if you were to look at Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, and we'll begin with verse 10. Genesis chapter 28, and uh, verse 10. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took of the stones of that place, put them up for his pillow, and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, this is what God said to to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land wherein you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those were some of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is God's way of saying to Jacob, I'm now establishing with you the same covenant I made with your grandfather Abraham and then your father Isaac. I'm now giving that same covenant to you and to your seed, your biological descendants. Jacob fathered 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in essence, what we're saying here is this. The parties of the covenant are these. First, God. Then Abraham. Then Isaac. Then Jacob and the people of Israel. Those are the parties of this covenant. Not Ishmael and his descendants. Not the Arab people. That's an important distinction to see in light of what's going on today. Because a hot issue in the Middle East today, who is the rightful owner of that land? Is it the Palestinians who are Arabs? Or is it the people of Israel, the right owners and dwellers of that particular land? So those are the parties of the covenant. Now the next major thing we have to see about the Abrahamic covenant is the national promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The national promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And there were three national promises. First, In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God said to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you. That's one of the promises God was going to build in to the Abrahamic covenant. And it had to do with God bringing into existence through Abraham's biological descendant, the nation of Israel. So that's one of the national promises of the Abrahamic covenant. I will make a great nation of you. Namely, the nation of Israel. The second national promise of this covenant. This one is very critical in light of what's going on today in the Middle East. God promised to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north. God promised to give the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north to Abraham's physical descendants Forever. Forever. Look, please, at Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. Right after God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. This is what he said there in verses uh, 6 and 7. Genesis 12, verses 6 
and 7. Abraham passed through the land under the place of Sychem, under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. Then look at chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, actually verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed for how long? What's it say? Forever. God said, I'm going to give you this land, all of it, from every direction you can see, from the vantage point you are standing now. I'm going to give all that land to you and your seed, your biological sons of the people of Israel, Forever, forever. When God says forever, that's what he means, forever, not temporary. Then go over to chapter 15 again, where when God established the covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, again, verse 18. In that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, by the river of Egypt, he didn't mean the Nile River. There was a stream of water uh, northeast of Egypt that ran from inland out into the Mediterranean Sea. And it was called the Brook of Egypt, the Brook of Egypt. And if you were to look at a map of uh, where that was when the 12 tribes of Israel occupied the land of Canaan, you would find that that stream of water was the southern border of the nation of Israel. In fact, it was the southern border of the tribe of Judah. That's what he means by the river of Egypt. But, have you ever looked at a map where the Euphrates River goes? It goes right up through where Syria and Lebanon are. And God's saying, the southern border of the land I'm giving to you is that brook of Egypt. But the northern border of this land that I'm giving to you forever is the Euphrates River in the north, up where Syria and Lebanon are today. Those are the north and south dimensions of the land that God promised to give to the people of Israel ownership of forever. Then look at, at uh, chapter 17 and verse 8. God again speaking to Abraham. I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for what kind of a possession? For an everlasting possession. Chapter 13, I'm giving it to you forever. Here he says, I'm, I'm giving you and your seed after you, the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. An everlasting possession. Then there was a third national promise in the Abrahamic Covenant. God promised to give the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham's biological descendants for an everlasting covenant. In other words, this covenant was to last forever with Abraham and his biological descendants, the people of Israel. Look at chapter 17, verse 7, where God said to Abraham, chapter 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. Again, verse 19. God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed. You shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. God's saying, I'm not only giving permanent ownership forever of the whole land of Canaan to the people of Israel, but the covenant which contains the promise of ownership of the land, I'm giving it forever to the people of Israel as an everlasting covenant. These are important things to see in light of the turmoil of what's going on in the Middle East today. Who's the rightful possessor and dweller in that land area that people are fighting over against Israel? Now, there's a third major thing we have to say about this covenant, and this is very, very critical to see. And that's the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. The unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. What do we mean by that? Simply this. The Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel 
it does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. Again, the Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. In order for the covenant to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled. I'm going to state that again. The Abrahamic covenant does not require Israel to meet certain conditions. In order for the covenant to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled. In other words, it's unconditional as far as, as Israel is concerned. Israel's concerned. They don't have to meet certain conditions. In order for that covenant to remain in effect with them and its promises on the part of God to be fulfilled with them. Now, what is the biblical evidence to the effect it's unconditional? Well, the first one ought to be pretty obvious in light of who the parties are, the covenant. Which party made all the promises in this covenant? God. Abraham made no promises. Isaac made no promises. Jacob made no promises. The people of Israel made no promises in the establishment of this covenant. God made all the promises. And therefore, upon whom does it depend for the promise of this covenant to remain in effect and to be fulfilled? God. Totally dependent on God being faithful to his word in this covenant. They don't have to meet any conditions for it to remain in effect with them, between them and God, and uh, for his promises to be fulfilled uh, to the people of Israel. Now, there's a, a second clear evidence. This was unconditional. And that is the way in which God established the covenant with Abraham. The way in which God established the covenant with Abraham. Uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 again. Genesis chapter 15. We read here that uh, God said to Abraham in verse 7 of Genesis 15, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. God's saying, this is one of the reasons I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give you this land to inherit it. And Abraham said to him, uh, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You keep promising that to me, but give me something concrete, substantial I can hold on to as the guarantee that you're going to keep your word and give me ownership of this land. Well, in response to Abraham's plea, God told Abraham to do something that to you and I, who are living in the modern Western world, think very strange what God told him to do. He told Abraham to take animals and cut them in half from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail. And then take the two halves of the animals and lay them side by side with a path in between. And so when you read the next several verses, Abraham did that. He did that, but then notice what happened to Abraham after he cut the animals and laid them side by side with the path in between. Verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. So now Abraham is off to the side from these animals, apparently lying prone on the ground in a deep sleep. He's not moving, he's just sleeping, that's all he's doing. In light of that, then notice verse 17. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Well, Abram's in a deep sleep off to the side from these animals. There's an object that has fire and smoke billowing out of it that begins moving back and forth between the halves of these animals. Now, one of the questions is, what's the fire in this object? I would submit to you, this is what the people of Israel came to know as the Shekinah glory of God. Remember the unique fire that appeared to Moses at the burning bush? Moses was out in the desert tending the flocks of his, of his uh, uh, father-in-law, Jethro. And he looked on the horizon. All of a sudden, a bush burst into flames. But what caught most of the attention was, this is not normal fire because the bush continues to burn, but it's not consumed by the fire. And so he drew near 
to watch this strange phenomenon. And just as he got there, all of a sudden a voice spoke to him out of the midst of the fire. This is when a person of the Godhead, probably the Lord Jesus, was there and appointed Moses to be God's leader of the people of Israel out of their slavery from Egypt. And he appointed Moses. And remember, Moses said, well, who shall I tell the, my countrymen is who sent me? You tell them that I am has sent you. One of the names for God is deity, absolute deity, the self-existing one. I exist in and of myself. Nobody else brought me into existence. I exist in and of myself. You tell them that I am has sent you. Fire there. Then, remember, the pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt. And then across the Red Sea. And then went with them for the 40 years of their wilderness wandering. Every time that fire appeared, it always signified the unique presence of deity. The unique presence of deity. Remember when they came to Mount Sinai? Fire and smoke were on top of that mountain. Fire came down from heaven. In fact, in Exodus says the mountain was on a smoke. There's billows of smoke coming up from the fire there. And a voice caused Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses met with one of the persons of the Godhead in that mountain to receive the Mosaic Law for the nation of Israel. Then remember when they erected the tabernacle in the wilderness by direction of God. On the day they dedicated it, fire came down from heaven, went into the Holy of Holies of that tabernacle. Then centuries later, when Solomon and the people of Israel dedicated their first temple there in Jerusalem, Fire came down from heaven and filled that whole structure. Even the high priest couldn't go into it until that fire finally went behind the veil at the Holy of Holies. Every time that unique fire appeared, it signified the unique presence of deity. And so, in my that, I would submit to you the fire with the smoke building out of it that was in this object was moving between the eyes of this animal while Abraham's in a deep sleep on the ground off the side is the Shekinah glory of God signifying who is moving between the halves of those animals? God is. Abraham's not moving anywhere. He is knocked out in sleep off on the ground to the side. God was moving back and forth between the halves of those animals. You say, okay, but what's that all about? Cutting animals and then moving back and forth? Well, there's another passage in Jeremiah which indicates this is one of the ways of covenants being established between parties in that part of the world. Now here's the point. If both parties are making promises of commitment and establishing the covenant, both parties were to walk back and forth between the halves of the animals. But if only one party is making all the promises of commitment, that's the only party that would move back and forth between the halves of the animals. So who was moving here? Only God. Abraham was not, which means, therefore, God was the one who's making all the promises and all the commitment. Now, from what we understand, the reason they would often use this as a means of establishing covenants, that the parties who are making commitments, they would move back and forth between the ass of animals as their way of saying, if I don't keep my commitment, my promise in this binding covenant, may the same thing be done to me as has been done to these animals. That was to verify, I am sincere in these promises I'm making. Well, the fact that God was the only one that moved back and forth between those animals indicates God was the only one making all the promises of the commitment. And so, therefore, for that covenant to remain in effect and its promise to be fulfilled depended totally and exclusively upon the holy God being faithful to his word. God never lies. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. And so it didn't depend at all upon Abraham making any commitments because Abraham didn't make any commitments here. And Isaac didn't either. Nor did Jacob at all. Nor did the people of Israel in this particular covenant. And so the bottom line issue here is, is God faithful to his word that he makes to his people? Does he keep his commitment? And part of that promise was, you have permanent ownership of this land. I'm giving you permanent ownership of this land forever as an everlasting possession. 
And this covenant that I'm now establishing is an everlasting covenant. Abraham, between me and you, and between me and your son Isaac, between me and your, your grandson Jacob, and between me and your biological sons of people of Israel. This is a forever covenant relationship between you and me. But it all depends upon me being faithful to my word and my commitment established in this covenant because you didn't make any commitments or promises in this to remain in effect and its promises to be fulfilled. Now, the people who advocate replacement theology say this. Because Israel rejected Jesus in his first coming and had him crucified, God thereby abrogated the Abrahamic covenant and says it's no longer in effect with my people because this is the most serious of all the sins Israel committed, and they committed many of them, you know, between this time this covenant was established and right up through Old Testament history, the Jews rebelled against God, worshipped false gods and all the rest. That's why they went off into captivities. But I think you and I would agree the most serious sin that Israel ever committed against God was the rejection of the Son. You couldn't have a more serious sin than that taking place whatsoever. And so if there was any sin the people of Israel could be guilty of that could have broken that covenant between God and Abraham, it certainly would have been that one. But notice, the only way you can break a covenant is if you've made commitments in it. Because if you haven't made any commitments or promises, you've got nothing to break. And so the Jews, they never made a commitment in that covenant. God made all the commitment. And therefore, when they rejected Christ, they were thereby breaking the Abrahamic covenant and making it null and void between them and God. And to show you that's, that's the way it is, turn with me, please, to the New Testament to see something very significant along these lines. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to begin with verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. But again, to get some background so we understand what was going on here, we have to see what took place earlier in Acts chapter 3. This was sometime after the church began. The church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And this was sometime after. And Peter and John, two apostles of Christ, were going into the temple on this particular day. And the entrance they were going into, there was a lame man who was born lame. He never was able to stand on his, on his two feet or legs, had never walked a day in his life. And the only way that man could survive would be there uh, near one of the gates going to the temple and begging alms of people going in and out. Depending upon people feeling sorry for him and giving them money, that's the only way he could survive. So he probably was there for for years and years and years, and Jews going in and out for all those years knew this man had never walked a day in his life. Peter and John come in that particular gate, and there he is, he's baking alms, and Peter said to him, Silver and gold have we none, but such as we have we give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the Lord performed a tremendous miracle of healing upon that lame man. And if you read... Uh, from the beginning of the chapter, he not only stood up and walked, he was so happy, he was running and leaping in the temple. And people of Israel who had gone by him for, for years and knew he had never was able to walk, it was obvious to them, there's been an incredible miracle of healing took place here. And so out of curiosity, a, whole, a huge crowd of people gathered around this man and Peter and John. And when Peter saw this crowd, notice what he did in verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. When Peter saw it, when he saw the crowd, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why you look so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. 
Apparently, some of the people that were in the, uh, in the crowd of the temple that day had also earlier been in the crowd when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and cried out for Jesus to be rejected and crucified. And Peter, in a sense, is nailed him to the wall. Do you realize the horrendous crime against God you've been guilty of? You have killed the Holy One of God. The one is totally sinless, just. And God's raised him from the dead to testify to you, He is my Son. I'm resurrected from the dead to demonstrate He's my Son. You reject him because he claimed to be the Son of God. I'm raising him from the dead to demonstrate he is the Son of God. So they were guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, replacement theology people said because they did that, God has broken his commitment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's nullified the Abrahamic covenant altogether, and therefore it's no longer with Israel. So therefore the land promise no longer belongs to Israel and all the other promises that God built into that covenant. Look in light of that at verse 25, what Peter said to that same crowd who were guilty of rejecting Jesus. Verse 25. You are, notice the present tense, not you were. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. That was one of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Notice Peter is saying, in spite of what you've been guilty of, of rejecting God's Son and having Him crucified, you are still the children of that covenant. You are still in that covenant relationship with God that He made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel. That's completely contrary to what the replacement theology people are saying today. Because Israel rejected Jesus. That covenant is nullified. God no longer regards it as that covenant relationship between him and the people of Israel. And therefore he's rejected the people of Israel as his people. And he's replaced Israel with the church. Replaced Israel with the church. Now, let me just quickly point out some of the implications of this that we've seen here. What happened? The effects of the Abrahamic covenant for the people of Israel. The first one is this. It guarantees Israel permanent existence as a nation, or if you want to say as a people. This covenant guarantees. It guarantees uh, Israel permanent existence as a nation or as a people. Now think through this. Since the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional by nature, it doesn't depend upon Israel meeting certain conditions for it to remain in effect. Since it's unconditional by nature, and since God declared it to be an everlasting covenant with the people of Israel, then that nation must exist forever. If they can be eliminated, then that covenant is not everlasting. It's not everlasting. It's temporary between God and Israel. And uh, look, if you would, please, at Leviticus uh, chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. And we'll begin with verse 44. Leviticus chapter 26. And we'll begin with verse 44. God speaking. And before this, he's been telling the Jews, you're going to be judged by me severely through the nations. And they're going to be, you're going to go through very, very horrendous times because of a rebellion against me. But then, notice what he says to them, verse 44, and yet, for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, the Gentiles, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. He said, in spite of the judgments I have to pour upon the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness rebellion against me, 
I will not destroy them totally as a people from the face of the earth. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 11. And by the way, Jeremiah wrote this by revelation of God when the southern kingdom of Judah had been so long rebellious against God that God is already bringing the Babylonians over against the southern kingdom of Judah to destroy Jerusalem, the second temple, and many of the Jews be killed and the rest of them carried captive to the land of Babylon. But in light of the fact that was Israel's spiritual condition at that time, notice what God says to them in chapter 30 and verse 11. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet will I not make a full end of you. But I will correct you in measure and will not leave you altogether unpunished. He say, when you rebel against me, I'm going to correct you. I'll punish you. Sometimes very severely. But I will never make a full end of you. Never. I may other nations where you've been scattered, but I'll never make a full end of you as a people, as a nation. Look at Romans chapter 11, where Paul in the New Testament is pointing out a similar thing. Romans chapter 11, and verse 28 and 29. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, as concerning the gospel, they, and in the context, they refers to the people of Israel. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. May I point out to you, as most of you know, I minister full-time with the mission board, which is attempting to reach Jewish people many places around with the gospel. And I can tell you, at authority, that's the condition of the majority of Jews today. They're enemies of the gospel and could care less about God and spiritual things. And most of them are secular and humanistic in their outlook, know almost nothing of their Old Testament scriptures. But notice what Paul says. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, by the election, his choosing the people of Israel to be a unique, permanent relationship with him forever as his unique people. He chose them, he elected them for that position in conscience of other nations. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The Greek literally says are irrevocable. And by the gifts, he's referring to the promises that God gave to the people of Israel, such as in the Abrahamic covenant and other covenants he made with the nation of Israel. So Paul says, even while they're in rebellion against God, against the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's promises to them and the covenants he's made with them are irrevocable. They are irrevocable. He will not break his word in the promise of commitments he made to those people as a nation. So that guarantees that even though he's allowed them to be persecuted severely through the Middle Ages, after the Reformation, during the Holocaust of World War II, and the scriptures reveal Israel's worst days are still ahead, during the, particularly the second half of the tribulation period, when right, well, the, the most horrendous things is right before the second coming of Christ, every nation without exception will send their combined armed forces against the nation of Israel in the Middle East. And Zechariah 12 through 14 says, when the world is bothering itself about Jerusalem, what's going to be done with Jerusalem? Even though all the nations of the world come against Israel, God says, that's when I'm going to go into battle against the nations of the world. And in the, the second two verses of Zechariah 13 say, as those armies sweep across the land of the nation of Israel, two-thirds of the Jews in the land will be wiped out very quickly. And the one-third remnant get bottled up in the city of Jerusalem. And you come to Zechariah 14, the armies of the world now come, they completely surround the city of Jerusalem. They're in the process of attacking it. Process of attacking it. And the remnant of the nations left there, now there's still other Jews scattered in other parts of the world, but these are the ones in the land of Israel. The remnant that's there has its back to the wall. There's not one nation or power upon the face of the earth they can appeal to for help because every nation is there trying to eliminate them from the face of the earth. And, and God even says in, in uh, 
the first several verses of Zechariah 14, he plays the role in bringing the armies there. And the, and the reason is to back them so tightly into a corner. There's no escape from annihilation until they repent of the rebellion against God and cry out for the true Messiah. Jesus, in Matthew 23, when it was obvious that he was going to be rejected and crucified, said this, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was their way of describing the Messiah. That's what's going to happen. God allows even the nation world to come against the remnant there in their homeland to break their stubborn rebellion. And when their back is to the wall, there's no human power they can appeal for for help. Their only hope of survival is heaven. And they're going to cry out, God! Send us the Blessed One, the Messiah. It's our only hope. Heaven opens. Guess who comes out of heaven? The resurrected Jesus Christ with the wounds of the crucifixion still in his body. If you were to look at Zechariah 12, verse 10, this is what it says of the remnant there, bottled up in Jerusalem. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they'll go about in great mourning, household by household, Family by family. What happens is this. They repent. The word repent means a change of mind. When they see the very one whom their nation rejected the Messiah come out of heaven as their true Messiah, in his resurrection body and his glory, they will radically change their mind from that of rejecting him to gladly accepting him for who he is. Once that happens, Zechariah 13.1, God says, I open up to them a fountain of cleansing. And wash away their sins. Once that happens, then Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4, that's when Jesus goes to war. And he wipes out all the armies of the world there at the gates of Jerusalem. The New Testament counterpart of that is Revelation chapter 19. Same scenario there whatsoever. God's going to allow them to go through the worst time of suffering they've ever had in all of world history. To break their stubborn rebellion and bring them back into right relationship with him so that they can finally fulfill what he raised them up to be, the spiritual leader of the whole world during the thousand-year reign of his son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, here upon planet Earth after Jesus' second coming to planet Earth. So that this covenant guarantees their existence as a people, as a nation. Many of them will lose their lives, but they'll never be totally eliminated from the face of the earth. And it also guarantees they have permanent ownership of that land forever as an everlasting possession. People might say, but wait a minute, they've been driven out of that land several times. Yes, but don't confuse ownership with occupation. They're not the same thing. Many landlords own many properties, but they don't occupy or live in all of them. They rent out to other people. So just because they've been removed, by judgment of God, by Babylon, Assyria, and all the rest in past years, doesn't mean they've lost ownership of that land that God has given to them as an ironclad commitment through the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Let me just conclude with this. There's a, a totally secular, non-government intelligence agency in the United Kingdom. And by their own testimony, they're not a religious institution. But they have... People send reports to them from all over the world of what's going on around the world. In one of their publications, they made this significant statement. It is therefore on the platform of Palestine and at the gates of Jerusalem that the present epic will have its final drama. Its final drama. That's exactly what God's describing in Zechariah 12 through 14. It will exactly be in the land of Israel, at the gates of Jerusalem, that the present epic will have its greatest and final drama. Because that's when all the armies of the nations will come against Israel. And that's when God intervenes. They are, have their rebellion broken. They accept their Messiah. And then Christ goes to battle and destroys these godless armies who are part of Satan's world life system here upon planet Earth.
So they will survive. But tragically, many are going to lose their lives before that happens. God is faithful to his word. That's the bottom line issue here with regard to replacement theology. And again, if I can't trust God to keep the promises in that covenant he made with Israel, then how can I trust God to make promises he's made to me as a believer in Jesus Christ? God, our Father, we pray that you'll take these weighty, awesome truths we see from your word, but we thank you, Lord, that you are God, that we can trust you implicitly, that what you say, you will keep your word and keep that promise. For that assurance we have, in light of what you do with Israel, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, together with your Son, Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit, as the only true and living God. Amen.